William McDonough speaking this week at South by Southwest ECO. sewage in the middle of the night and we would lie on our futon and my mother who was from Alabama spoke Japanese would come in and sing us songs about the night soil and the farmers with their honey wagons and they were taking the poop to the farms and you're three years old and your mother is singing to you in an Alabama accent in Japanese. <laughs> it doesn't get better than this. So I always thought that the cities and the farms were one organism and the farmers would collect our sewage and come back to, and during the day with our food. Waste equals food. Now I'm an architect and architect's job and designer's job is to change the way we see then we rearrange the furniture, and then we build. So I'd like to look at this poem from 1124 by a non-mystic doctor, Hildegard Glance at the sun, see the moon and the stars. Gaze at the beauty of Earth's greenings. Glance, see, gaze, now, think. She goes on to say, what a delight God gives to humankind of all these things. A delight, the beauty, the delight. And then all nature is at the disposal of humankind. This is known as usufruct. We are to work with it, for without it we cannot survive. We are to work with it, for without it we cannot survive. Well, is this sustainability? When I won the President's Award for Sustainable Development at the White House, the press came up and said, Mr. Sustainable, what does it all mean? This was 22 years ago. And I said, I'm not that interested in sustainability. And what? I said, well, I mean, if I asked you what your relationship to your spouse was, and you said, sustainable. <laughs> Sounds like maintenance. You know, this isn't that exciting. That's all we got. So sustainability is actually not just meeting our needs and others' needs. It's actually about growth. It's about intergenerational value creation. We leave the world better than we found it because the world is actually designed for growth. Now, I had the privilege to live in a house designed by Thomas Jefferson, the one on the lower left there, for five years at the University of Virginia. And when you have Thomas Jefferson as your architect, you read what he wrote, and the University of Virginia is Plato at the head, the arts, search for truth and beauty and culture, proportion, ethics, morals, and then the two sides, there are ten pavilions on, a colon on colonnades, this is Aristotle, this is the search for truth in number, in science, in data, but it's the search for truth, 
Aristotle called what he did practical wisdom. The wisdom came from the ethics and the beauty. The practical is how we act. Jefferson and Madison corresponded while designing the US federal government. And their question about how long a federal bond uh, should be in its term was decided by them that it should be one generation. Jefferson thought it should be 19 years. As you know, it's 30 years. But his logic was this. He said, the earth belongs to the living. No man may by natural right oblige the lands he owns or occupies to debts greater than those that may be paid during his own lifetime. Because if he could, the world would belong to the dead and not to the living. The world would belong to the dead. When did we start talking about human rights? The Declaration of Independence, the French Revolution, the 1700s, the equity century. It was a start. The Declaration of Independence only applied to 6% of the population, white, landowning, males, Protestants. But, hey, we've expanded a little bit. We even have the Endangered Species Act. The rights of something other than a human to exist. Then we see the economy century with the 1800s. And all of a sudden, between equity and economy, we see the destruction of feudalism, primogenitor and divine right. Does anybody here want to go back to being a serf? But then the 1900s, what century is that? It's the pollution century. I don't know what the principles were. It was like crazy time. And we heard about that yesterday from Bobby Kennedy. We polluted. What? And then we decide at the end of the century that we want to become efficient at the Earth summit. Oh, let's have eco-efficiency. Oh, let's destroy things a little less quickly. <laughs> what? Be more efficient. Doing what? The wrong thing. Oh, well, let's do it perfectly. Oh, now we're perfectly wrong. <laughs> so the question of right and wrong is more important than less is more, less and more. To be effective is to do the right thing. Peter Drucker the management consultant said, it's a manager's job to be efficient and do something the right way, but it's the executive's job to do the right thing. So what is the question? What is the right thing to do? So out of the Earth Summit, we get eco-efficiency, and people start doing charts like this. And every time you see a corporate sustainability report, you see charts like this. And what do they say? They say, oh, we're bad, we're going to be less bad, and our goal is nothing. <laughs> Is that all you have for me? Can you imagine going to home to your children and saying, hey, we're bad, we're going to try and be less bad, our goal is nothing, and you're making it difficult for me because I have to feed and clothe you? <laughs> or, I'm going to reduce my carbon emissions or my toxins by 20% by 2020. Well, that's nice. You're telling me what you're not going to do. This would be like getting in a taxi and saying, quick, I'm not going to the airport. <laughs> Is this really helping us, what we're not going to do? So the question is really, hmm, um, how do we love all the children of all species for all time? That's the design question. These are our values. So I wrote the Hanover Principles in 1992 for the Earth Summit. And the first was insist on the right of humanity and nature to coexist. Insist. 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 So if we start with our values, 
how do we love all the children of all species for all time? Then we can move to principles of behavior. This is the fulcrum against which Archimedes could lean the lever of change. It does not move. The thing that does not move. The truths we hold to be self-evident. Then we have visions. Now my job is visions. That's what I do for a living. And I know that without execution, visions are hallucinations. Got that. <laughs> Goals we then set, then strategies, then tactics, then metrics, and then we produce value. But if you start with value, if you start with number, all you can do is benchmark. You start by saying, how much emission do I have, and I'll reduce it. You start with a number, you start with benchmarking. Your goals are benchmarks. You don't get to your values from value. You can't get to your human values from a number. You can get to the number from your values. So we like to start with what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, and less and more come later. So the commercial question then has to be, why would businesses, by definition meant to be profitable, produce something they can't sell? Why would they produce something in society that's a cost, like pollution? It's a very uncommercial thing to do produce liabilities instead of assets. So since commerce is the engine of change, because typically regulators are chasing commerce, what if we could use commerce as the, to make the change we want to see? And so if we look at the 1700s as the equity century, the 1800s the economy and the market economy century, and then the 1900s the Belusin century, this century, our century, must and can be the ecological century. And then we will have a civilization worth passing on. So, it's a design problem. Now, everybody says, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I'm a designer, it all looks like a design problem to me. Right? But design is the first signal of human intention. And the value of our tools are placed there by the intentions of the users. So a hammer in the hands of a child is a toy. In the hands of a carpenter, as a house, and in the hands of a maniac, as a weapon. The hammer is innocent. It doesn't know. What are your intentions? So if our intentions are to make the world better because we're here, how do we do that? So let's start by where we are. Where are we? We are here. We're going to start out here in the universe. We're on a planet. This is it. Here we are. Well, what are the design guidelines of this thing? Well, look, energy comes from the sun. Materials, the rocks, the water, they're all here. We don't have, energy. We don't have material income. We have solar income. But, you know, occasional meteorite, some cosmic dust, that's about it. So, what's here is here. And then what happens? Sunlight falls on the Earth's surface. Carbon comes from the atmosphere, nitrogen from the atmosphere, and we get life. Wow. So all of a sudden we get physics meets chemistry and we get biology and that is us. So we look at that and say, well, wait a minute. So if I'm going to design with this, let's remember what Francis Crick said about what it means to be a living thing nine years after discovering DNA. He said to be alive means you have growth. To have growth, you have to have income. In nature, the income is from the sun. And then you have to have an open metabolism of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organisms and their reproduction. That's us. So I think the first order of business 
is human and ecological health. If you're not doing that, you're not paying attention to the health of the organism. So with Cradle to Cradle, we have five criteria. Material health, circular economy, clean energy, clean water, and social fairness and sharing. Today, I'm going to talk about material health, circular economy, which I've done before. And then I'm going to talk about this idea of carbon management in a new form. And I will, in November, in Marrakesh, deliver a talk, a keynote, entitled A New Language for Carbon. And we'll save that for then. But today I want to talk about design. So if we design with cradle to cradle, what we realize is the biological metabolism we just described, waste equals food, us. But there's another one we call the technical metabolism, the, the televisions, the computers, the cars. We see these as technical nutrients. What you want is to watch television. You don't want to buy 4,360 chemicals. So we call these products of service. In a circular economy, you get the service, and then we move on to the next use. So we don't call things that are inanimate things that have end of life. That's silly. This isn't alive. Your phone talks to you, but it's not live. So what end of life, really? No, end of use. So we say end of use and design for next use. Not end of life. So the Cradle to Cradle framework is now the protocol that's in the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute and is a certification program independent, third party, standard, and, and is available to everyone. And this is um, a place where these products can all be put through these rigors, down to the parts per billion. Now how did I get into some of this? Well, I designed a daycare center for Frankfurt. When I was over there talking to the teachers and the engineers, I noticed that the children were eating the building. <laughs> so I thought to myself, what are they eating? I think I've got to look into this. So I, I, I worked out how to meet with ecotoxicologists and, and then started to work, work with Michael Braugart. And we started looking at materials down to the parts per million, parts per billion for ecological and human health. Then in 1994, I was asked by Steelcase to design the fabrics. So I worked with a chemist and we looked at 8,000 chemicals in the textile industry, got it down to 38, made a fabric so clean you can eat it. And by the way, if you flew in an airbus, you've sat on it. It's so safe a fabric that if you find yourself at 40,000 feet with an extreme fiber deficiency, you can safely eat your chair. <laughs> the water coming out of the mill turned out to be clean as Swiss drinking water. The trimmings became mulch for the local garden club instead of hazardous waste. This is design. A biological nutrient. We did the same in carpet. We designed carpet since you really want the appearance, the acoustics, the wearability, and so on. But a lot of the time, you get various uh, toxic materials, carcinogens, mutagens, and so on. We redesigned it working with, with uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Shaw Industries too, with nylon six and thermoplastic polyolefin backing, and designed a carpet where you're essentially storing your materials on your customers' floors because you want it back, and you can make it into carpet again forever. There's 1.4 billion pounds of carpet waste in America. Wouldn't it be interesting every year if we could continuously reuse it for carpet, keep the jobs, keep our floors comfortable. Store your materials on the customer's floor. Circular economy, product of service. Design for human and ecological health. We then work with furniture industry, our steel case, Herman Miller. We designed their chairs to come apart in the future easily and sortable to polyesters, polypropylene, rubber, steel, aluminum, so on and so forth. We also looked at appliances as products of service. What you want is to wash clothes. You don't need to own rubber, steel, glass. So we leave those in the hands of the industry. 
so they can, they can have their materials, keep them on their books, keep assets, grow them into the future, and have them available for the next round of product. We know how to do this in buildings. Buildings are typically leased for 15 years in the office buildings. Why can't we do this with all kinds of things? So that's why that works. So this is turning into what we call the circular economy. Moving from the linear economy of take, make, waste to take, remake, take, retake, make, retake, make, restore. So how do we do this? Think about it. The mines of the future are not out there. You can mine gold at $210 a ton of ore, or we can now mine circuit boards. It's just been shown in Memphis. In a factory so clean, you can put it in your neighborhood. Water in, clean water in, that's it. Not coming out. $27,000 a ton. Gold and rare earths, precious metals and rare earths. Isn't that amazing? So, as an architect, I thought, well, uh, when I was in college, if I ever become an architect, I'm going to design buildings like trees. Negative entropy. Because I learned about entropy in physics, and it was a law. I went, oh, no, it's a law. It's entropy and chaos. Everything's going to chaos, and that's the law. That's all there is. And I couldn't find negative entropy. So I went to the library, I couldn't find it. We didn't have Google. But I was in the wrong library, I was in the physics library, and I was looking for negative entropy. They have the law of entropy, where's the other? Wasn't there. Why? I was in the wrong library. It's in biology. <laughs> if you burn a log and it goes poof, never to reassemble, fair enough. But where did it come from in the first place? <laughs> negative entropy. Order out of chaos. That is life. So I thought to myself, if I ever design a building, I'm going to design buildings like trees. Then I see this ad from Toyota eight years ago. I couldn't believe it. Our aim, zero emissions. And there's a tree. What? It emits oxygen, bird song, fruit, soil health, water, fuel. Really, zero emissions. We're down to this? Emissions? Zero emissions? Nothing? That's ridiculous. Now, we aren't that smart. This requires immense design humility, this thing. I mean, this can self-replicate, too, by the way. Pretty impressive. It took us 5,000 years to put wheels on our luggage. <laughs> we went to the moon before we had wheels on our luggage. <laughs> then it took another 20 years to put four wheels on our luggage. <laughs> We're getting there. So, so I thought, if I could design buildings like trees. So at Oberlin College, starting in 1992, with David Orr, we designed a building. This makes 130% of the energy it needs every year. It purifies its own water and builds soil. Imagine a building like a tree. Bill Ford asked me to redo the River Rouge in 1999. And I could have done eco-efficiency and said, well, let's shrink its footprint or something. But instead, we did the world's largest green roof. Saved for $35 million in capital expense by not using chemical treatment plants and pipes, which is the same as walking into their board and giving them an order for $900 million worth of cars at a 4% margin coming out of Chicago. That's how you got this done. Then NASA asked me to work on the Mars Space Station. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't go to the red planet until you come back to the blue one. So what if we got the same design team that did the space station, and we did a space station on Earth? Wouldn't that be fun? Let's pretend we're naked, land somewhere, and see what we come up with. So we did. So we put this model in our minds, put it in the, the Johnson Space Center, Houston where they heard the words, Houston, we have a problem. We started there. We said, OK, did you invent the photovoltaic for this? Yep, we did that. Really? 
So this is a nuclear-powered thing, and the reactor is 93 million miles away. A safe distance. Yep, that's it. Okay, you're in charge of energy. Can we drink our urine up here? Absolutely. Four of us muscles. Great, we did that. You did Okay, fine. You're in charge of water. Good. So we do this on Earth, and we did. Ahead of schedule, under budget for normal federal office building, we built a building that has potential to make 120% of the energy needs from renewables and purifies on water. They say you don't need to be a rocket scientist to do something smart, but what if you were? <laughs> so we figured, make a design team. <laughs> Let's build a building. So we did. And NASA, amazing. So this is a resort I'm working on for, in the Caribbean. I just want you to see these are the, the buildings we're making them out of materials that we, we find in the new building system that's very light touch. But I just want you to see what it looks like from above. When a bird flies over, it's welcome home. So, in Amsterdam, we're designing buildings as continuous assets. The buildings are designed to come apart in the future, so if they were not needed as office buildings, they can be housing, they can become other buildings, and we can sell the assets as commodities. We're also looking at uh, whole systems where this is renewably powered, heats and cools its water, purifies it, all this kind of thing. Buildings like trees. In, in India, I just finished a factory, I'm doing two more, where we put farms, uh, greenhouses on the roof, put the structure on the roof, and now there are people working inside, and on the outside, on the roof, they're all upstairs growing food for their families. So the building feeds the families that work in the building. In Chicago, for Method, we thought, isn't it beautiful that they're going to Pullman, a place that needs work? famous factory town, Pullman Cars Railroad. And they're going to build a factory that provides work for the people there, make soap. But what if you thought about a child's drawing of a factory and you said, there's going to be a factory here. Why should a factory be chimneys and smokestacks? Every icon you ever see, if somebody draws, oh, factory, it's always got a chimney and smoke from it. Why should that be? So we said, what if a child, a 10-year-old, was asked to do a drawing of a factory and do a wind turbine and a solar collector? building, the greenhouse on the roof. Huh. That was my drawing. But I designed for 10-year-olds. So we're doing a trade park in the Netherlands. It's now the national hub for the circular economy. It's three and a half square kilometers. And we're bringing businesses, hundreds of businesses together to integrate their supply chains, their information systems, so we can design things that are there for perpetual human benefit. So here's a couple of airports. The buildings either make solar energy or food. They grow food on the north side and make energy on the south side. This is a conceptual project that I'm working on in China, a city that can feed itself, power itself. Now notice the solar collectors on the right. I want to show you something. This is solar collectors in Africa. This is death to soil. Where are the farmers? What's the soil? This is the United States. We call this zoning. You can't have industrial and, and agriculture in the same place. Why not? Watch this. Look. I call these the solar orchards. This is so beautiful. You put the solar collectors up in the air, and the animals come back, and the grasses come back, and the roots go down 15 feet, and the water comes back, and the fungi come back. And you have five revenue streams here, including wool, fiber, and so on. Look at that. The grasses come back on their own. This is Inner Mongolia. 
where the hills were denuded by cashmere goods. So, so the idea of just saying we're going to be less bad isn't going to cut it with future generations because they're going to get tired of it and say, what were you thinking or not? So let's put what we don't want below the line. Let's put what we do want above the line. And let's tell the kids we're going to be less bad, but we're also going to be more good. And we're going to reduce the badness to zero. Fair enough. That's a noble thing. But we're really looking for 100% fabulous. That's what we're really here for. Not nothing. We're looking for 100% fabulous. So we start with an inventory. What's good, what's bad, what's we're looking for. We've located it based on our assessment. And then we put it there and we do constant improvement. That's who we are. The world wants to get better because we're here. Designers are inherently optimistic. You wake up every morning trying to make the world better. Anybody here wake up in the morning trying to make it worse? <laughs> and, uh, somebody introduced me to, actually, it's Bill Clinton. Um, he said, the thing about Bill you gotta understand is optimists think the glass is half full, pessimists think the glass is half empty. Bill thinks the glass is always full of water and air. But he also never thinks it's big enough because there's more to share. So what are we leaving behind for the kids? This or this? This is a choice we get to make. So this brings me to the carbon and the cities. So you're very lucky to have, I think, 20 visitors here from over, overseas who are here to talk about carbon and cities. Very, very kind and sensitive people. I had a chance to meet with them this morning. Sponsored by uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies and the State Department. And the idea of cities and carbon, I think, is really important. And obviously, the cities do, too. Because as we look at who's trying to deal with the carbon question at a scale that's meaningful, we see these kinds of groups. And these are the people who are going to help us get this done. And the scale of the human city, where 80% of us will live in mid-century, is a critical dimension. So I decided to play with the idea of the carbon positive city. And I've noticed my language is different. The paper I'll, I'll deliver at Marrakesh and in Nature Journal this fall is called The New Language for Carbon. Because we have weird language for carbon. I don't know if ever, any of you noticed, but negative carbon is a positive. See, if all we think of is carbon in the atmosphere, well, then all we know is that carbon is bad. Well, is carbon bad? If anybody here thinks carbon is really bad, you should probably shoot yourself, dry up, and blow away because you're mostly carbon. So, um, you know, carbon is not a bad. Humans can be bad. Carbon is innocent. So, we look at this idea of what if carbon is a positive when it's in soil? What if it's a negative in the atmosphere? Etc. Etc. So, remember this a toxin is a material in the wrong place, water is highly toxic. If anybody didn't notice, surround yourself with water for six minutes. Highly toxic. Jump out of an airplane, hit the ocean 120 miles an hour. Highly toxic. Very small duration, very large dose. So any material in the wrong place is toxic. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a toxin. It's poison. We know that now. But just remember, this is like lead. In rivers, anybody here think we should put lead in rivers anymore? Okay, now just imagine the parallel on this one. Let's go talk to the children of Flint. Let's pretend lead is CO2. 
Okay, kids, we're going to reduce the lead in your water by 20% by 2020. How are we doing? It's a toxin. You stop. Oh, let's do net zero. There are people defining net zero carbon as you, you offset the amount of carbon you release to the atmosphere by renewables to the same amount of energy, and that's your offset. Wait a minute. You're comparing an electron to a molecule, to an atom here. This is silly. Because that means you could double the amount of carbon and double the amount of renewables, and you're still net zero, but you just released twice as much carbon in the atmosphere. What? Can you imagine telling the children in Flint, you know, we're sorry you've got hundreds of times more lead in your water than that is, is dignified to even consider. So we're going to go to Austin, Texas, and take lead out of the water because it's cheaper equal to the amount of lead in your water, and now you're lead neutral. <laughs> Carbon in the atmosphere is a toxin. So, what is good, what is bad, what is positive, what is negative? So, carbon in the soil is an asset. Carbon in the atmosphere is a liability. Why would we create liabilities? I thought we know how to put wheels on our luggage. So, if we look at cities and we start to think, what is this air? Oh my goodness. What about the soils in China? 19.4% have been declared toxic. The farmland in China. 19.4%. Toxic to food. So what if we started thinking about cities as something connected to the landscape, like that childhood dream in the Alabama song in Japanese, with the farmers and the nice soil and the honey wagons. And you start to imagine the farms and the cities are one organism again. And we start to realize that the agriculture doesn't have to be necessarily a village scale next door. But instead of a linear flow city of take-make waste, where we take the nutrients, we put them in sewage treatment plants, add poison and throw it in the water. Really? You know? Really? What if we had cities that could cycle the biological and technical nutrition for everyone's benefit? Instead of sewage treatment plants, we have fertilizer factories. We bring back the machinery and we reform it. And we continuously improve with integrated flow and concentration. And food that comes from overseas gets consumed within the, in the city and it becomes food for the farmers. So we recycle the phosphates. This is struvite, phosphate, recovered from the sewage treatment plant of Vancouver. An astonishing thing. Phosphate comes from North Africa, a little bit from Kazakhstan. It is now a strategic mineral. We all need it every single day. Why don't we have the cities become phosphate mines? Think about it. So you take three simple steps. You start with your city, you do your inventory. Define the bare boundaries of the city. Study what you want to consider your greenhouse gas emissions. Study what your opportunities are. Look at the projects that you can do. We now see a solar farm that we just uh, set off a contract at three cents a kilowatt hour. We're there. And we go. We then assess these things and figure out which ones we can afford, which ones we can't. And then we optimize. We refine our thinking. We execute. We share. Now it's clear that the, uh, this is the emissions of carbon from fossil fuels. This is the emissions from land use changes. Here's the land sinks, there's the atmosphere, and there's the oceans. We must bring down this gray zone. We must stop releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And then we must honor our soil.
Franklin Roosevelt, the history of every nation is eventually written in the way in which it cares for its soil. So, our job right now is to change the question of commerce itself from a world of limits and greed, how much can I get for how little I give? Sounds like our election. <laughs> We're gonna change that question to how much can we give for all that we get? It's a world of sharing and abundance. So we imagine our cities reducing the things we don't want, increasing the things we do want, and letting our children lead us into this future. Because all nature is at the disposal of humankind, and all humankind is at the disposal of nature. For we are to work together. For without working together, we cannot survive. And actually, what a delight God gives with these things. So let us glance at the sun, see the moon and the stars, gaze at the beauty of Earth's greenings. Now think, now do. So ask yourself, how do we make the world better because we're here? Insist on the rights of humanity and nature to coexist. In a delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and just world. This isn't a del delightfully less monotonous, less unsafe, less unhealthy, and less unjust world. This is a positive vision. Clean air, clean soil, clean water, and power. We deserve this. We have to fight for this. Economically, equitably, ecologically, and elegantly enjoyed. The earth belongs to the living. Thank you.